How does novelist Lynn Ullman handle the story of her famous parents, Ingmar Bergman and Liv Ullman, in her autobiographical novel, Unquiet? A.O. Scott joins us to discuss. And what to do with all that anxiety? Our help desk columnist, Judith Newman, will be here to talk about the latest books intent on wiping it out. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Joining us now, my colleague A.O. Scott, who reviews this week the new novel by Lynn Ullman, Unquiet, in the book review. Tony, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Pamela. So I even feel funny using the word novel, right? Yeah. Because what is this book? Well, this book, okay, we have to back up and say that Lynn Ullman is the daughter of two very famous Scandinavian cultural figures. And her father is Igmar Bergman, and the great Swedish director. Her mother is Liv Ullman, the Norwegian actress. And... As was talked about in a in a profile that appeared in the in the Times magazine, this was a something that she never talked about, and that she's been a prominent literary critic and and novelist in Norway for quite some time, and it was off limits anytime you wanted to talk with her. So now she's written a book that is the first person recollections of a woman who's a writer who is exactly Lynn Ullman's age, whose parents are a very famous. Swedish filmmaker and a very famous Norwegian actress, none of whom are named in the books. It's like the most transparent, blind item, gossip column fodder ever. But it's also a very complex and intriguing and sometimes very moving meditation on family, on whether you can really know your parents, whether they're famous or not, and and how you structure a life story. So it doesn't read like a novel, but it doesn't really read like a memoir either. Is it autofiction? Is it that new thing? It's not because I, I don't think it it goes quite into the sort of the the granular detail of of everyday life. When I think of autofiction, I think, of, think of, you know, of, of of Karlova Knausgard speaking, you know, of Scandinavian autofiction in particular, where it's like everything I felt and thought and did, no matter how trivial. This is much more. It's more self-conscious. It's more aware of the, the the distance and the difficulty between the narrator's voice and the material. It sounds like Rachel Cusk like a, a, a little bit. I mean it, it has it has some of that 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 very kind of angular, minimal sort of short declarative sentences, at least as it's it's rendered in this in this translation. But then sometimes it kind of opens up a little bit. So it's a it's a it's a it's a very curious book. It's hard to get into. I, I felt like the first hundred pages, I was sort of frustrated with it because I thought, like, what what is what this is about? This? She's spending all this time with her her father as he's aging and and declining, and they come up with this project where she's going to interview him on tape, and that's going to be the book. But that's not really what this book is. This book is sort of about how she never wrote that book. But it does gather up some, I don't want to say momentum because it's not a plot-driven book, but it just sort of takes you in. And one thing she's very good at, and, and I don't know quite how she does it, is in spite of the minimalism and the detachment and the self-consciousness of the voice, you do feel like after a while you've gotten close to the characters and you can kind of see them and feel them and you know what they're like. W- without her necessarily ever quite 
describing them in, in conventionally psychological or realistic ways. I hesitate to talk about the packaging of a book and what it says on the back and the blurbs and the jacket, but I'm going to here because of, the, of this sort of strangeness of, of what this book is and the structure. On the jacket, it says, Praised across Scandinavia as a literary masterpiece, spellbinding and magnificent, Unquiet reflects the six taped conversations the author had with her father at the very end of his life. And, you know, it, and then it goes on, but it, it so it makes you think this is nonfiction. And you look, of course, it is categorized as fiction. And she does start off with that. Does it then sort of switch gears? Not really. I mean, it stays with these conversations and it sort of goes back to them. But the, these conversations are very unrevealing in a way. That is, if you want to sort of find out about Igmar Bergman's life from the transcripts of these conversations, you're not going to discover anything except that he was kind of a, a, a grumpy, doddering old man and he loved Beethoven and he ate an omelet every day at exactly the same time. Well, you have this quote about Beethoven where it, I think, gets to also some of the limits of this interview, right, where she says, can you tell me about Mama? And he says, I've been thinking about Beethoven, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is not exactly so, and, and that kind of misdirection is there's a lot of that in the book and sort of everybody does it. The narrator does it. Her mother absolutely does it. I mean, her, her mother almost emerges sort of out of the shadows as a more vivid and complicated figure than the father, partly because the narrator spends a lot more time living with her mother and knows her mother better. And they have a certain, there's a certain mother-daughter tension and competition that they have. Whereas her father, she spends time with him in the summers on this island where all of his other kids from, you know, I think it's it's five different wives or maybe four different wives. He and, he and the mother, leave woman, were never married. But he's in his office working. He's a sort of a remote, benevolent, patriarchal, figure who's not to be disturbed when he's working but will invite his daughter in and talk with her and is is kind to her when he sort of remembers that she exists. The mother is a is a, is a much more complicated sort of dominating difficult figure and and I think the 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 more interesting and and kind of more raw and unfinished part of the book has to do with the narrator's relationship with her. I mean there's so much ambivalence in the way that this book sounds and in the interview that she gave with the New York Times magazine in, in terms of her willingness to talk about her parents. Like, it feels like a very conflicted book. And, and yeah, and it's a very complicated thing because, I mean, you know, obviously Ingmar Bergman, if most people could name one Swedish filmmaker, it would be him and one Norwegian actress, it would be Lee Woman. But in Scandinavia itself, it's sort of like if this was a book by, you know, 30 years or 40 years in the future by Blue Ivy Carter that never identified her parents as Jay-Z and Beyonce. I mean, it's, it's, these these are enormous dominating cultural figures of the last 50 or 60 years in Scandinavia. So to just sort of say the father, the mother, the daughter, it's a little puzzling. And also what's what's interesting, too, is the public life of these characters is very blurred. So she'll mention that, you know, her mother... They moved to the United States so that her mother can be on Broadway. But it doesn't mention the names of any of the shows that she was in. Everything is kind of cloaked or obscured or blinded. But you just go onto Wikipedia and you can find out you can piece <laughs> all, it all the material. 
Well, you went into this with a body of knowledge because in addition to being a literary person, you are one of our co-chief film critics here at The Times. And I imagine that at least a part of you went in thinking like, what am I going to find out about Livulman and Ingmar Bergman? So let's just start with them and let's start with him first. Tell us a little bit about what we know about Bergman as a person and as a filmmaker. And then did you glean any insight into him from this book? Bergman is is a gigantic figure in film. Also, he was also a novelist. He was also a, a director of, of theater and, and opera, sort of a cultural titan of a kind that has few equals in, in the world. And, and also, from the standpoint of American audiences and the American public, he was a sort of a big deal in the arrival of international film, of foreign movies, into sort of the consciousness of American viewers, partly because... His early movies were much more sexually frank than than American movies were allowed to be at that time. And give and us some movie names. Monica, for, those who... for example, and had very beautiful women in in fewer clothes than you would see in. Uh, it was all very Scandinavian. Movies. Yeah, and he made, of course, the Seventh Seal, the great term paper movie of the <laughs> 1960s, and then with Ullman made a number of movies. The first of which was Persona, which is. An extraordinary movie. Is that Very, your favorite? It's in a way, favorite. it's it's one that I come back to. I mean, it's not the most accessible, and and it can almost be a, seen as a parody of a sort of of a difficult movie. And there, there's actually a great you can find on YouTube a Second City TV parody of it. And but there's Smiles of a Summer Night. There's scenes from a marriage, which is extraordinary. There's Fanny and Alexander. He was both, I think, a great filmmaker and also an heir to. Scandinavian literary and theatrical tradition of Strindberg and and Ibsen, the intense psychological interest and the way that the sexual desire and power dynamics and existential crisis all sort of come together in the in the fates of his characters. And and Liev Ullman, if I can, you know, quote something you said before we went on the air, was one of the most beautiful women ever and an extraordinary actress and just a formidable talent. And the two of them made, I think, seven or eight films together. Their relationship didn't last all that long, but their collaboration was very important and very fruitful. So, I mean, there are biographies of Bergman. Liev Ullman wrote two volumes of memoirs. So a lot of the their own accounts of their own lives and and the details are available and accessible. And I'm not sure that this adds very much to that, except that you kind of see them through the eyes of a child, which is something you hadn't before. So you see their vulnerability, their cruelty, their carelessness, all these ways that parents can be around their children that great artists never allow themselves to be in public. I mean, fathers in Bergman's films are particularly terrifying People. Monstrous, yeah, and cruel and tormented and tormenting. And he's not that in this book. He's certainly the center of his own universe and in a way of his own cult of personality. And everything in the little compound on this island where he's in the summer goes according to his rules and his whims and everything happens, you know, at a certain time. And you know, had nine kids. Yes. <laughs> and, they, and they screened a movie every day at three o'clock and you were not allowed to be late for the movie. And one of the ways, it's sort of touching details in the book is one of the ways that the narrator knows that her father is starting to slip and starting to age is that he's 10 minutes late for something, which he'd never been in his life. You wrote in your review that this is also a kind of grief memoir. I think so. I think it falls into that genre. If it belongs to any genre, it feels like it's that one where the drama of the book is the processing of the loss of a of a person who had been very important and very present and who, 
you're simultaneously trying to figure out who that person was and who you are without that person. Also, just even the spareness. I feel like the grief memoir, I mean, just thinking back to the year of magical thinking, which is kind of the standard for the modern version of the genre, so much is between the lines. So much is about what's left out and how difficult it is to say even the minimal amount that you can get onto the page. I don't know what her intention was, obviously. I don't know that she revealed it in the profile, but it feels from your review like this book is in a certain way an attempt by Ullman to capture the three of them as a family mm-hmm. that didn't necessarily exist really in, in life. She wrote in the book, I was his child and her child, but not their child, and that there was not a single picture of the three right. of them. It's an attempt to compose that group portrait that never really existed. Each one exists in, in their own kind of space, and she moves in between them. But And there, there's also stuff in the book about, I keep saying the narrator, because we're going to respect that this is a novel about about her marriages, about her, her husband's infidelity. I mean, there, there, there are things that have nothing, strictly speaking, to do with her parents. But it's sort of trying to paint a portrait from life that no one is sitting for. They never sat together. This is not her first novel. She wrote four novels before this. And I'm curious, you have a copy of The Cold Song, which was the novel that came out here before this, right. um, which we've both read. It feels very different from that. I mean, does it, it, do it feels, feel— I mean, it's, it feels different, although the structure is also fragmentary. There's a chronological displacement. I would say one thing that's similar, I don't know quite how to describe it, is this effect of being simultaneously— right up close to a character's consciousness and thinking and experience and also at a distance from it. Um, Sounds very Nordic. It feels like it is because it's not that it feels intimate. That's not the word because that's too sort of warm a word, but it it feels very analytical but very sort of probing. She sounds like her father's daughter. Yeah, I mean, you you, you get this feeling... um, reading it, and and this may be sort of the achievement of Unquiet is the creation of herself as a character who you could imagine as both the daughter of this father and of this mother. Because Lee Volman is also, as she comes across in this book, very disciplined, but also very emotionally volatile in a way that the daughter also is. And there is the steady, relentless, analytical gaze of the father that is also part of, of how this girl, how this woman perceives the world. In the profile that ran in the magazine, she writes about her mother and talks about her mother in very effusive terms. Well, and her mother is still alive. <laughs> you know, it There's was a just, difference there, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it's kind of interesting that this book arrives, at least in this country, just after Bergman's centennial and Lee Woolman's 80th birthday. I think it is an interesting thing that you take away from this book about sort of mothers and fathers, or this mother and this father, is that... He remains, in spite of the conversations that are taped and transcribed, a kind of unreachable figure, whereas the mother is right there all the time and her flaws are maybe more evident to the girl, but also they're sort of close and connected in a way that the narrator and the father never quite are. So you wrote this review and you read this novel before that profile came yes. out, <laughs> like which is always a complicated thing. Did you feel like after reading that profile, that interview with her, that there was something that you might have known or come into? Yeah, this? I sort of wished I'd, it would have been it would have been useful to have it just because, you know, I, I did some reading around and, and certainly with, with a book like this, you, you have to do some research and some some outside reading. But on the other hand, when you're reviewing, you're just trying to. Th- 
almost imagine that this thing exists entirely in and of itself. So what would it be like to pick up this book and read this if you didn't know or care who Ingmar Bergman and Lee Woolman were? Would it be an interesting book if you just plucked it off the shelf and, and assumed it was fiction and sort of took at face value the description of the novel? And it turned out to be very, very hard <laughs> to evaluate it in those terms. But it's always worth a try. I mean, it's, you know, just to sort of put aside the research and whatever else the you context. know. And just, because when you're writing a review, you're just trying to tell the reader, you know, what is this? What is it like? What are you going to find if you if you pick it off the shelf? I feel like this is a good moment to mention that Tony is also the author of a book called Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. So this is something you have given thought to. <laughs> something I never stop thinking about. It's what keeps me up at night, how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, thanks so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. A.O. Scott is a co-chief film critic of The Times, and this week he reviews Unquiet by Lynn Ullman, translated by Thilo Reinhard in the book review. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Judith Newman joins us now. She is our self-help columnist. And this month in the book review, she looks at books that deal with anxiety, mental illness, and grief, which is a very important subject. So, Judith, thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm very happy, if nervous, to be here. But you're going to tell us how to overcome all of these things. I am. Okay. It's my job. The books that you cover in this, I'm going to just quickly go over the titles, are Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief by Clara Bidwell-Smith. Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. How Not to Fall Apart, Lessons Learned on the Road from Self-Harm to Self-Care by Maggie Van Eyck. And then you touch on two somewhat different titles, and we'll just talk about them very briefly. A Drinkable Feast, a Cocktail Companion to 1920s Paris by Philip Green. And House Magic, Transform Your Home with Witchcraft by Erica Feldman. Okay, so everyone's going to be wondering about those last two books, but I'm going to leave them to the end and get to the heart of the subject by talking about the first book in your review, Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. So this is a kind of interesting follow-up to a very grim but well-reviewed and, and best-selling memoir that he wrote called Reasons to Stay Alive. Haig is also a novelist, and he writes great children's books, too. Hmm. What is this book about? Well, the gist of this is that he recognizes what we all recognize, which was, is that we're at a particularly jangly point time in our, our history, right? We have a million distractions. What? We, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can barely get through a knock-knock joke with my children. That doesn't take place fast enough. So we have all, we, we we are constantly looking we're looking for entertainment. We don't know how to entertain ourselves. And more to the point, we are always looking outward towards people even though we're in our homes most of the time. They're either richer than us, prettier than us, seemingly having a better time than us. It's that FOMO thing, the fear of missing out. The fear of missing out, exactly. And he's writing a book about how we can 
kind of cope with that on a day-to-day level. And of course, it's not like what what he he does it in these little listicles that are very clever. And it's not that what he's saying is novel, particularly. It's not. But it's the way he delivers information. And he's, I mean, among other things, he's very funny. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, even if he's just telling us something very basic about not being affected by what other people are saying on social media, it's his way of doing it. I loved when he was talking about how we we fret about our weight. Not that I would ever do that. Huh. But his way of of talking to us about these issues that are really very common are instead of just saying, you know, the, the typical don't worry about your body, which we don't really need to hear, right? He takes the point of view of the beach and he says, hello, I am the beach. I've been around for millions of years and I have to tell you something. I am a beach. I am entirely indifferent to your body mass index. And and that's the, the kind of approach he takes. He also, I, I tell you, in his advice, he gave this one piece that I really wish I could just serve up to my sons every single day and we should all serve to our children. He said, never be cool. Never try to be cool. Never worry what the cool people think. Head for the warm people. Life is warm. You'll be cool when you're dead. See, I just opened this up randomly since you said it was listicles and thought, okay, this is going to be easy to read. And this is where I landed a therapy session in the year 2049 where a robot therapist says, so what's the problem? And the, it says, my son. So presumably Matt Haig's son. Well, I think it goes back to my parents. Really? My dad specifically. What was the matter with him? He used to be on his phone all the time. I used to feel like he cared about his phone more than me. I'm sure that's not true. A lot of people from that generation didn't know all the consequences of their phone use. They didn't know how addictive they were. You have to remember it was all relatively new back then. And everyone else was doing it. Well, I'll tell you something. After I read this book, I made a point. I had a, I have a tendency to talk to my own children while I'm messing around while I'm playing words with friends. Mm -hmm. I just do it constantly. It's addictive, and I'm having conversations. And I've had to, very consciously, take the phone, put it down, put it away from me. And he gives... Like keep the conversations with kids and the words with friends in separate, safe distance. In two separate places. Of course, as soon as I want to talk to my children, they don't want to talk to me because they're (laughs) 17. But that's beside the point. And I, I, I think that... Now, I have to admit that he talks a great deal about going off the grid and he talks about some of the things you can do to how you have to go outside, how you have to get in nature and so forth. And I did notice, I just happened to to notice that while I was reading the book in the two hours that, that I was reading, he had tweeted maybe seven or eight times. So I mm. think, I think he probably still needs to take his own advice, but we do need to take that advice. See, my approach to meditation, for example, is to read articles by people about how they were transformed by meditation. I read one this morning, and then I'm like, I'm done. (laughs) Now I don't have to meditate. If it's in your brain, that's good. Yes, the intention is there. Okay, let's talk about how not to fall apart. Lessons learned on the road from self-harm to self-care by Maggie Van Eyck. It's a fascinating book because she's dealing with not just your garden variety neurosis, but she is addressing people who have real mental illness challenges. And again, she's very, very funny, but she's talking about severe anxiety 
and how you can deal with it. So the book is organized in a way to take various issues in your life, whether it's that you're going for a job or you're meeting a new person or you have to get an apartment or whatever it is, you person with mental illness, how you can cope. And I think it's it's very, very smart. She does something that I had never considered before, which is that she explains better than anyone ever has to me what it is if you're a person who cuts yourself, because she defines herself as someone who has both borderline personality and severe anxiety. And she talks about why she does this. And in a, so that a line she has that I think it's wonderful, you know, that it's it, it's not the reasons you think. She says, it's not like I'm a drama queen and I've been listening to My Chemical Romance all day. She says instead that it's it's when she has an anger that feels like it's going to swallow her whole and actually cutting herself or burning herself, which is something else she did, what it does for her. What does it do? It is a physical release of that anger or that pain. And it quiets her head because she can concentrate on the pain that she feels. Is it like a physical manifestation of the internal non-physical pain? It's like you need to make it tangible? Yeah, it's kind of like the ultimate in, in distraction for her. At a certain point when she's just broken up with someone... She ends up in a burn unit because she has burnt, she's put so many cigarettes out on her arm and she has a horrible infection and this and that. But, but so you, you tend to listen to her when she talks about this stuff. So she, she just says that it allowed her a release from, uh, from emotions that were taking her over. And I, that to me makes a certain amount of sense. I've never been in this place, I have to say. Uh, I've been an anxious person, but I've certainly never, ever felt suicidal. And to me, she, she talks about the need for making lists, but not in the way you usually hear talk about it. She says that when you're feeling really anxious and really depressed, it's not like you're checking things off. It's that the lists are a link to the future. And at that moment in time, you need to think about the future rather than thinking about what happens. You know, I can get rid of this pain right now. So I thought it was a really, really interesting book. And I think that for people who have a kid who's in a lot of pain, like a teenager, and, and, and probably particularly a girl, this would be a good book to give them. Hmm. Okay. A little bit more targeted in terms of what it's covering. Anxiety, the missing stage of grief, a revolutionary approach to understanding and healing the impact of loss. Clara Bidwell-Smith, what's this book about? Well, you know, this was a little bit personal to me because I this year I, I lost my husband. He died, and I think I I understood what she was saying about fear. The, the, C.S. Lewis wrote in A Grief Observed that no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I had to define it, you know, mostly what I did after a period of functioning pretty well was waking up in the middle of the night and sort of like, what's next? What's next? What do I do? So I think that she goes to great lengths to normalize some of these feelings, normalize your fears. She also worked as a, uh, in hospice mm-hmm. and as a grief therapist after having the experience of both of her parents getting cancer and dying at an early age in her life. I mean, if that that's Certainly something to send you up, set you up for a lifetime of, uh, of panic attacks, I think. And she had panic attacks. And she tells you, she talks to you about how to create a kind of distance 
between yourself and the panic attack and how to normalize that so that once you know that you are not, in fact, dying, how you can be bemused and be kind of an onlooker in that. She also is useful in in telling us that this is a culture that doesn't respect death Mm -hmm. and how we have to come to a point in this culture. You know, and there, there are other places where you are kind of given six months to sometimes a year, and very little is expected of you. And we don't do Where that. are those places, Judith? I know. We're going to move there, right? <laughs> I'm going to move there. Now, I'm, I'm forgetting, so I don't want to get the wrong place. But I'm assuming but it's I, somewhere in, in Scandinavia. In, say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that might be legally true. I think, and please, I don't want to get this wrong, I, I think she said in certain, certain cultures in Africa and in Japan as well. Mm. In, in, not that you, in Japan, it was that you wear certain clothing to indicate that you are going through a grieving period, and therefore people people react to you and respect that grief. And so, we had that once here when we just wore black, just wearing wearing black and right in Italy. I think it, it kind of goes on for a long time, doesn't it? Like forever, you just wear black. That's the end of color. That's for you. the <laughs> right, right. But you know, and and actually, I may be wrong with Japan about it. it's not black. No, I think it's, it's white. I think or, it's white. Yeah, yeah. But at any rate, it's the idea that we as a culture, are frightened of death. Mm-hmm. And the, f- the fear of the death experience itself breeds fear for our futures. And she, she talks about it very intelligently, I think, and very comfortingly. You also took comfort, I think, in two very different books. I mentioned them at the top. Well, let's start with the one you touch on first, House Magic. This, see, I brought a present for you. Because it, this is when I knew, you know, that, that my anxiety had gotten the, the best of me. Because read the whole title of that book. Then. So it's House Magic, Transform Your Home with Witchcraft by Erica Feldman, who identifies herself, her title underneath her name is a house witch. Yes, she's a house witch. And so she talks to you a little bit about all of the things you can do to get rid of uh, bad juju in your house. Now, this is why... Pamela, is that the technical term? Yes, bad juju. That's it. <laughs> This, this is, I brought you these, this salt, because she does say that if you have people in your house who have toxic energy, you can kind of sprinkle the salt around. And I, I, I as I've said, you know, I, I have this bad feeling if I actually start dating people, if, if you see me reaching for the salt shaker. It's like, you know, it's like it's blowing pepper, you know, having pepper spray. And- yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's exactly right. You sort of sprinkle it around the house. You know, there's the salt for you if anyone comes in the house you have some issues with. Well, I do have to say, Judith, that for listeners who can't see this salt, I want to point out that it is Malden sea salt flakes, that I own this salt, that I, in fact, bought this salt only two weeks ago. I'm very salt particular, and I like to have, I have my kosher salt and my coarse sea salt and my fine sea salt, but I did not have sea salt flakes. So I am tempted to take your box of Malden salt, but to use it on food. And not to okay. sprinkle it on my floor. You can use it. It is the best salt. So there you go. You can sprinkle that and you can use it on your cooking. Brought to you by MaldenSeaSaltFlakes.com. <laughs> All right. Let's talk. <laughs> to go with that salt, we also have A Drinkable Feast, a cocktail companion to 1920s Paris by Philip Green. Yes. This is my—you see, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that the, uh, the books, at least as uh, far as I read, there was no mention of medication. So for those— who, uh, in addition to looking to the self-help books, need just a teeny bit of self-medication, here is your solution here. The Drinkable Feast, it, it gives you all sorts of recipes 
I love the one called monkey gland. And I was going, why didn't I, why didn't I try what this What is in the monkey gland? Well, it's orange juice, gin, a grenadine. And then I realized why I didn't do it because absinthe is the other ingredient. So I guess I, guess I still have some anxiety about uh, it poisoning myself with that. But yes. And then it gives you not only the drinks, but also the people, some of the people who favored those drinks. So uh, I was very happy that a drink I love is favored by uh, Henry Miller, Van Blancassis. Am I pronouncing that right? Van Blancassis. Thank you. That's I knew you would know. And uh, that's uh, four ounces of chilled dry white wine, ounce of chilled creme de cassis, and red fruit for garnish. There you go. Well, I think, Judith, you should take this book with you to Paris and maybe put the house magic in your home. And these other three can go th- on the shelf I where think- you can refer to them <laughs> <I also laughs> when brought- this all wears off. I want everyone to know I brought Pamela a bottle of really cheap rosé wine, like screw top wine, because I also for me it's dry January. So I'm trying to divest myself of all this, but she won't take it. So you're giving me your leftover looking. salt and, and wine here, That's Judith. Exactly, that is what all I'm right. doing. I need Along with the self-help review, Judith, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Judith Newman is our self-help columnist this month's Health Desk is about books on anxiety, mental illness, and grief. Alexandra Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new? So the publishing industry, like the rest of the world, has been fascinated by the news that Jeff Bezos and his wife Mackenzie are getting divorced. Of course, the literary world is obsessed with Amazon, which has done more to disrupt their business than probably anything else in history. But it's also kind of an interesting publishing story because Mackenzie is a pretty well-regarded novelist. Not a lot of people know that about her. She writes literary fiction, and her books have been pretty well-reviewed and published by major publishing houses, Harper and Knopf. But, you know, they haven't been bestsellers, even though you would imagine she would have every advantage if she were to rely on her close association with Amazon. Um, But that hasn't necessarily been the case. She sort of went the independent route, and it's been sort of a running joke when Jeff Bezos gives interviews about Amazon's publishing ambitions. Of course, they have their own publishing imprints and bookstores. He sort of laughed and would say, oh, Mackenzie's the novelist who got away, you know, when they, when he would be asked why they don't publish her. So who publishes her? So her first novel was published by Harper, The Testing of Luther Albright, and it came out in 2005, and it was very well-reviewed by critics, and it was called Quietly Absorbing uh, by Kate Bullock in the New York Times. The Los Angeles Times named it as one of the best books of the year. Publishers Weekly praised her startling talent for naturalism. So it it did quite well, and apparently that book took her 10 years to write. She was involved in the early days of Amazon. She helped out with everything from, you know, serving as an accountant to actually shipping books when orders would come in when it was just being run out of their garage in Seattle. But once the company got up and running, she pretty quickly turned to her first kind of passion, which was literature. She studied with Toni Morrison at Princeton, who praised her and gave her an incredible blurb for her first novel. So this is something she has been passionate about since since she was little. And in her author bio, she described her first effort at serious writing when she was six years old, and she wrote a 142-page chapter book titled The Bookworm. When she was six? Yes. <laughs> so I think it's safe to call her a prodigy, I suppose, although she claims it was destroyed in a flood, and so she's been backing up her work meticulously ever since. Is she working on a novel now? 
That is an interesting question, and not surprisingly, nobody in the publishing industry was keen to comment for this story. You know, it's not exactly a great moment to be in the spotlight when you're in the middle of a high-profile divorce, so nobody wanted to kind of weigh in and say what she was working on, although there were rumors that she was working on a third book. After her debut novel was so well-regarded, she then published a second novel with Knopf, and that one was called Traps, and that was also well-reviewed. So, you know, she she seemed to have everything going for her, except, and this is somewhat ironic, I think, in fact, her association with Amazon might have been harmful in a certain respect, which is booksellers, of course, are not fans of of this online retailer, which has hurt their business in, in such severe ways. And when you're publishing literary fiction, you know, you're often building your audience through word of mouth, through hand selling, through independent bookstores that are going to put your novel, you know, in the front of the store or say, here, check this out. And I did hear, you know, privately from people in the publishing industry that independent stores were not keen to carry her books. I think the difference between book people and regular people when they hear Amazon is that regular people think of it as like the everything store, whereas book people still think of it as purely a bookstore. Yeah, exactly. I think you're exactly right. That's how it started. It started as an online bookstore, and then it became the everything store. And, and, you know, in the years since, it's kind of expanded to encompass every aspect you can imagine publishing. They own Audible, and that's the fastest growing segment in the industry right now are audiobooks. They own Abe Books, which is a used and rare online bookstore. They have 15 publishing imprints that publish everything from literary fiction to romance to science fiction to nonfiction. Now they have physical bookstores, which are, you know, expanding across the country, not to mention their whole self-publishing operation, Kindle Unlimited, the fact that they have probably the most popular e-reader, which gives them really deep insights into what consumers are reading, how quickly they read, where they, what they highlight, where they stop. So it's just sort of this omnipresent, all-encompassing force in the publishing industry that no one can really compete with. Well, it'll be interesting to see what her third novel is about. I can't wait to read it. And of course, publishers were hoping that she might write a memoir. He might go after (laughs) half her royalties. (laughs) Alexandra, thank you. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Sarah Lyle, Jumana Khatib, and Lovia Garke. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. All right, Lovia, let's start with you. I actually just finished a book, Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, which I didn't read when it came out, I think, two years ago as the sort of like it book of the year. And of course, you know, Sally Rooney is incredibly talented and she was blurred by Zadie Smith. But I'm really allergic to books of that nature that get a lot of hype. And that's kind of disappointing because I I just finished the book and it's honestly fabulous. I really enjoyed it. I think it was just such a pristine and spot on portrayal of a young girl in her 20s who's deeply depressed and very insecure. And just, I mean, for those who don't know, the the premise of the book is essentially a 21-year-old college student who has an affair with an actor who's 12 years her senior because she and her best friend are have this poetry collective type thing. They're, they perform their poetry and one day this photographer wants to do an article on them for a small town paper and the photographer is married to this actor and the four of them become this kind of group and they start hanging out a lot and and take these fabulous trips. And Francis, who's the main character, starts to develop a crush on and which later turns into an affair with the photographer's husband. 
I mean, there's so many fabulous things about this book, and I read it because I'm I'm in a book club with a few people on our desk. And I knew it. It's a conspiracy <laughs> with this book. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy, but it's so funny because it has definitely introduced me to books I would not like normally read. And we had our book club conversation, which left me sort of wanting a little bit more. And I realized that I felt so personally connected to this book just because like I'm also in my 20s and I felt like Rooney really captured the voice of somebody who's kind of like moving through this life unsure and doesn't really trust their own version of reality for whatever reason, whether it be just, you know, kind of having externalizing their insecurities or feeling like the world hasn't validated them in, in quote unquote certain ways. There are a lot of things I love the, about the book, the dialogue. It moves at the pace of a thriller, I think. Like, I finished it so quickly. And, yeah, I mean, I could I could go on forever, but I don't want to because it's not my podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> but also, it's set in Ireland, right? Although it seems so universal. Like, it's mm-hmm. what I love about her writing, and it's the same with the new one that's just about to come out, is it seems... Like, everybody can relate to it. Even yeah. I'm much older than you, but it feels very natural to me. It feels yeah. like she's recording how people think, but yes. not in a boring way either and right. not in an overwrought way. It's almost like they have no skin and you're right. just right inside there. And it seems so—it's almost like you read it and you're like, why hasn't anyone said it this way before? It yeah, feels, no, you definitely. Know, the way she describes, you know, just like in a conversation, how you suddenly feel a certain way and mm-hmm. you're insecure about this and you said it because you're trying to impress that person over mm-hmm. there. And it's it's so amazing. The art that is required to do something that sounds so artless is so incredible. Yeah. I, th- You know, one thing I think that's really, that she does really well is capture how we feel about the people that we love in our lives and how we kind of put them on a pedestal. And there's this really incredible part where Francis and Bobby, who are the two main characters and best friends and who also used to be in a relationship, are having a conversation. And Bobby's like, oh, maybe I'll become, I'll go on and be a professor after graduation. And Francis is thinking, oh, Bobby, you're better than that. Like, you can't just, you know, be a teacher. And Bobby tells her, you know, sort of quite straightforwardly, Francis, you think everyone you love is so special. And I think that, like, that's kind of such a central premise of the book is that Francis's perspective is so skewed by how much she adores these people, but also how insecure she feels in comparison to them and how she thinks that everybody is is better than her. And because these people that she loves are so great, you know, they can't possibly love her the way that she loves them. And and that kind of really, you know, obviously affects how she interacts with them. It, it, it makes her less, I think, a little honest with the people around her, like her conversations with Nick, who's the man that she starts an affair with, you know, are really painful sometimes because you can tell that Frances wants to say things and, and feel a certain way, but she constantly denies herself that. And even when she's, she's you know, called out, and I think, like, to capture that, just the awkwardness of, of conversation and, and vulnerability is is really impressive. Also, I'm going to say one more thing. It's, you know, <laughs> interesting when you read books when you're different eras. So when you read that book in your 20s, it's so interesting that what you pick out is that you relate to her vulnerability and her sense of not knowing who she is quite yeah. yet. When you're older, I read the book as, like, all these people are flawed. All these people behave inconsistently in a way that's very normal. Like, it feels like that's how people behave. They all hurt each other. None of them mean to. I think she's very sort of forgiving of her characters, and she yeah. makes them seem like real people who make mistakes but still love each other or still do their best yeah. in some ways. Yeah, I really yeah like. they all live very much in this gray area. And their registers always seem very relatable and normal. I mean, like like a big part of the structure of that book is very epistolary, right? With emails going back and forth and it never feels like a gimmick. Yeah. It felt like yeah. an email I would sit down and write to a friend. And I think that that really helped with that sort of 
like you're talking about. It's like there wasn't even a skin between you and the characters, Sarah. Yeah. So, Jumana, um, <laughs> what are you reading? Okay, well, I'm in the process of moving, <laughs> which means that this is a time when you have to take a hard look at your bookcase. Yeah. Also, I use that to procrastinate on packing. <laughs> so I'm actually going back to... A book I read last year for the first time and loved, and it's Enigma Variations, which is the newest novel by Andre Asiman, who's the author of Call Me By Your Name. And this one has a lot of the same themes as Call Me By Your Name. It sort of follows one man and his romantic affairs throughout his life. And it opens with this character returning to a place from his childhood and sort of trying to find, like, the older man that he was completely infatuated with. So, I mean, really, really similar themes. And... I mean, I think the way that the novel deals with a lot of these tropes, is it's great. I mean, like you have the same sort of like seduction and abandonment cycles. And I don't know. I mean, the book is just beautifully put together. Really, really beautifully put together. What is the title referred to? It's uh, a musical work by Bach. But yeah. how does that figure in? I mean, what is it? Why is it being used as a title? For me, the the novel reads like a fugue, right, where you sort of see these sort of patterns and tropes emerge and you know recede into the background in the way that the musical composition might and also it I mean I don't want to give too much away but it does figure into the character sensibilities and tastes and becomes kind of a touchstone for them so yeah it's wonderful this is so weird but I feel like I've only read call me by your name as everyone I guess has now so it's (laughs) not a unique sort of phrase to say but I feel like Andre Asimov is such an aesthetically pleasing writer like you know I went does that still Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a gorgeous novel. The novel is beautiful. That's amazing. Well, Sarah, what are you reading? Well, I just got back from vacation, as many people did, so I was reading books that other people had brought. And I, someone had brought The Friend by Sigrid Nunez, which came out a few months ago, and I missed the first time around. Partly, I mean, we'd written about it, and the author sounded really great. But I... I was too heavy in my thinking on it's like a book about a dog and somebody's relationship with a dog. And I love dogs, but I'm, you know, I'm not that interested in a book about a person and a dog. And I realized reading it that the friend doesn't refer to the dog. It refers to the person who died, who's a friend of the narrators, who bequeaths her his Great Dane. And that's just a sort of device to for her, the narrator, to talk about her relationship with this man. And it's it's an interesting book because it's there's a little bit of plot, but it's mostly meditation and musing on really interesting topics, including longevity and friendship and friendship that's changed over many years and a platonic friendship between an, a woman who's single and a man who's been married three times, and yet they still have this friendship, and about writing, because the narrator is a writing teacher and also a novelist, much like the author of the book. And so it's a little bit, it reminds me a little bit of Milan Kundra in its philosophizing and it's sort of musing on these issues and not just focusing on the the plot. And I thought as a meditation on grief, which I've, you know, lost a lot of people in the last few years, and I feel very strongly, you know, we have these relationships with people who are dead that continue to change as they go on. And it was interesting to see the narrator grapple with that in this really beautifully written book. Pamela, what have you been reading lately? I am reading Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life by William Finnegan. And he was a guest when this book came out a few years ago on the podcast. Before he was a guest, I had zero intention of reading this book because I have no interest in surfing. I think it sounds dangerous and terrible. And I, you know, I, Jeff Spicoli, I just, I don't think of it as something that I want to do or, or, 
In fact, speaking of grief, what I think of is tragedy and people, you know, dying and being pummeled. And and I think of Francisco Goldman, you know, say her name and people just suddenly being, you know, torn body asunder. Surfing. Body, body surfing. surfing. Yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Any kind of surfing, Sarah. Okay. This is the surfing water. with a board. But it is such a beautifully written book, and you don't have to be interested in surfing. It's a memoir. Obviously, surfing plays into it, but it's also a kind of travelogue. And he's a he was a foreign correspondent for The New Yorker. And so his his the surfing kind of takes him to different places around the world. I was talking to Heidi Julevitz yesterday, and she said that she was pretty sure that in all of his descriptions of waves, he never used the same language twice. And I'm wow. only partway through it. And she said there might have been one instance. So now I'm reading it very carefully to see if she's <laughs> correct about that. But I just want to read one passage to give you a sense of what there is to say about surfing that I, in my complete ignorance, would know nothing about. So he writes, Nearly all of what happens in the water is ineffable. Language is no help. Wave judgment is fundamental, but how to unpack it? You're sitting in a trough between waves, and you can't see past the approaching swell, which will not become a wave you can catch. You start paddling up coast and seaward. Why? If the moment were frozen, you could explain that by your reckoning, there's a 50-50 chance that the next wave will have a good takeoff spot about 10 yards over and a little farther out from where you are now. This calculation is based on your last two or three glimpses of the swells outside, each glimpse caught from the crest of a previous swell, the hundred-plus waves you have seen break in the past hour and a half, your cumulative experience of three or four hundred sessions at this spot, including 15 or 20 days that were very much like this one in terms of swell size, swell direction, wind speed, wind direction, tide, season, and sandbar configuration, the way the water seems to be moving across the bottom, the surface texture and the watercolor, and beneath these elements, innumerable subcortal perceptions too subtle and fleeting to express. These last factors are like the ones that the ancient Polynesian navigators relied upon when, on the open seas, they used to lower themselves into the water between the outriggers on their canoes and let their testicles tell them where in the great ocean they were. I will say <laughs> that after reading that passage, I said to my youngest child, like, can we watch Moana again? Um, <laughs> which we did. They don't do show the testicle navigation in that film. Only works for half of us, sadly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in those moments when, you know, I the very few moments I've ever thought about surfing, I can tell you that I had no idea that any of this was happening in their head. I just thought they were like, dude. So it's a revelation <laughs> to me. <laughs> All right. So before we go... The books again, Sarah Lyle, what did you read? The Friend by Sigrid Nunez. Jumana? Enigma Variations by Andre Asiman. Luvia. Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. And also for me, Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life by William Finnegan. All right, thanks, guys. Thank hey. you. Thanks so much. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.